Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I am also your host, Aviv Rubenstein. Spike Lee's seminal comedy drama, Do the Right Thing, is generally thought to be one of the greatest films of all time. Released in 1989, Do the Right Thing was written by, directed by, produced by, and stars Lee as his third feature film. And it follows 1986's She's Gotta Have It and 1988's School Days. Plot-wise, Do the Right Thing is set in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bed-Stuy on the hottest day of the year. Seen through the eyes of Mookie, Lee's character, the only black employee of the Italian-American-owned Sal's Pizza Shop. Throughout the day, cultural tensions in the neighborhood boil in parallel with the sweltering sun leading to a violent outburst. This movie gives us some of Spike Lee's most iconic moments in a film that feels as vital today as it did in 1989. Do the Right Thing also features a monumental needle drop, Public Enemies Fight the Power, which essentially serves as the film's theme song. How did Spike Lee initially team up with Public Enemy, and what did this placement do for both Spike Lee and Public Enemy's careers? And what effect did Fight the Power have on hip-hop's next generation? Plus, we're thrilled to be joined today by journalist and author Stephen Kearse, who in 2020 wrote an essay for Pitchfork entitled, Why Do the Right Thing and Fight the Power Are Eternal. All this and more on the latest episode of InSync. So excited to be here with journalist and author Stephen Kearse. Stephen has written for Pitchfork, The Nation, The Baffler, Rolling Stone, very, very highly decorated. And he has a forthcoming novel, Liquid Snakes, arriving August 8th. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and excited to talk about Do the Right Thing. Um, will you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your writing, just like what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I saw you're also a full-time editor. Yeah, I've got a lot of plates spinning. I'm from Atlanta originally. I live in the D.C. area now, and I've been doing music criticism with book criticism and film criticism mixed in since about 2014. And I'd say reviews are kind of the main thing I do, but you know, I also report, and in my full-time job, which is a nonpartisan newsroom that covers Pennsylvania politics and government. We are both Pennsylvania natives. Wow. Yeah. Well, me, like, slightly less. Get out. Because I, <laughs> my family jumped around too much. But we did live for four years in Harrisburg when I was a kid. 
Um, and I went to school in Allentown in the Lehigh Valley. And I'm just a fan of PA in general. And I'm from Bucks County. Nice. I'm, I'm not from there, yeah. um, like I said, but I, through my job, have learned a lot about it. I'm getting really into Pennsylvania's potato chips right now. Uh, is it Utz? No. No, wait, not Utz. No, hers. 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 I'm not there yet, but I just, like, I'm going next week, and I have seven brands, like Gibbles, K- Ray's and K's, Troyer. Cool. And Middle Swarth, like I'm really trying <laughs> These to are all get into it. Names I've never heard before. Among the many field trips we took uh, when I was in elementary school was a trip to the Hearst Potato Chip Factory. Did you see the Christmas nice. lights? No, I don't. They I mean, do don't... like a Christmas lights garden every year. Oh man, no, no, I, I don't remember if we did. It's like during the day, and I don't remember it at all. But like they did give us fresh potato chips from the oven. Hell yeah! And we also went to a Bologna factory. Did you say Bologna? Yeah, we went to like a Bologna factory. <laughs> or- oh, that's not the weird part about what you said. <laughs> you pronounce it Bologna? That's what they said. Like weird, that, that, like weird. That's Al? how they pronounced it. They said Bologna. Like not bologna? That- wow. I mean, in my head, I was like, wait, I thought it was bologna, like as an eight year old. Right. But they kept saying Bologna. Amazing. It might just- the way it's <laughs> the way it's spelled, I, I would think it was bologna. Yeah. Like I feel like that's how Italians would say it. So as the screenwriter, film expert, Aviv, please tell us a little bit more about the plot of Do the Right Thing. Who boy. Do the Right Thing is a movie that I didn't see until my 30s, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit that. But after seeing it, I think on an airplane and sobbing and freaking people out that were sitting next to me. You watched it on an airplane? Yes. That's a bold choice. So I had always, this was like my estimation of it, was like I had always thought it was a comedy. And the, the, the poster... Especially like Spike Lee is like looking up at the camera with like, you know, what are they going to think of next kind of look on his face. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is probably like a like a I knew it was about a hot day in Brooklyn, probably like a quirky comedy. And I was wrong. And <laughs> so you were thinking like more like Friday. Vibes, yeah, but... something like Friday, but a little bit more elevated. Yeah. <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> After seeing it, it immediately rocketed to in the top 10 films of all time list for me. It's set over the course of one day, the hottest day of the year, and the film's plot can appear pretty loose at first, but there's a lot of machinery at work uh, churning toward this conclusion that feels inevitable. So a super quick plot recap for context. Mookie, played by Spike Lee, works at Sal's Pizzeria. It's pronounced Pizzeria in the movie, much like Rachel pronounces Bologna. <laughs> Uh, so Sal's is an Italian family owned shop. Danny Aiello plays Sal and his two sons are played by John Turturro and Richard Edson. John Turturro is like kind of a household name. Richard Edson was one of the, he plays the less racist of Sal's two sons and he's one of the valet guys from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh my God, that's where I know him. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time I was trying to play, wait, wait, where do I know? Cause I've seen, it's his nose. Not to man. cut you off of Eve. I had seen Do the Right Thing once in my 20s and embarrassingly didn't finish it because, like I told you, Aviv, before we started, like, it was recommended to me by, like, a very filmy ex. Mm. And I was like, man, you know, you're going to watch me watch this movie and now I don't, like, want to watch it. So, anyway, like, I watched the whole thing (laughs) 
this past week and was like, I know this guy. Where do I know him from? Where do I know him from? It's something I've seen a lot, but I can't play. Bueller's <laughs> Day Off. They're, I think that they're doing like yeah. a like a reboot or a prequel about like that guy. I don't know. It's <laughs> very not important to what what we're talking about. So Mookie has a son who lives with his seemingly on again off again girlfriend Tina, played by Rosie Perez, in her first film role, and she's one of the first people we see on screen in a really significant way and do the right thing. The neighborhood is rounded out by the mayor, Mr. Mayor, who is not the actual mayor, but who, who is what would have been referred to at the time as a wino. Mother sister, who's an older woman who sits perched on her window or at her stoop, kind of judging the rest of the neighborhood. Buggin' Out, played by a young Giancarlo Esposito, Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. Smiley, who's a developmentally delayed vagabond who sells pictures of martin luther king jr and malcolm x embracing and last but certainly not least radio rahim who walks around all day with his boombox blasting public enemies fight the power radio rahim's played by bill nunn who we sadly lost in 2016 there are a lot of things that happen in this movie including mr mayor saving a young boy from getting hit by a car a conflict with a white gentrifier in a larry bird jersey and in an early film role as well samuel l jackson playing a radio dj whose sign off is that's the truth ruth but the central plot mechanics are this like many pizzerias sal has a wall full of photos of famous italians bugging out demands to know when sal is gonna quote put some brothers on the wall Meanwhile, Sal's being kind of creepy toward Mookie's younger sister, Jade, and Sal's son, Pino, is pretty against any sort of fraternization between his brother, Vito, and any person of color, including Mookie. Smiley gets kicked out of the pizzeria for being weird to customers, and Radio Rahim, who has a pattern of interaction with Sal and playing his boombox too damn loud, Sal eventually winds up smashing the boombox, kicking him out, and the police just kind of show up uh, in the middle of this altercation. One of the police officers is played by Danny Aiello's actual son. The police make everything worse. They put Radio Rahim in a chokehold until he fucking dies. This, compounded with all the other fucked up shit Sal has done throughout the day, leads Mookie to throw a trash can through the window of Sal's and the restaurant is burned to the ground. This movie feels like it could have been made and remade every single year from 1945 till today and still be relevant. But it came out in 1989 when Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. I have not seen it. You're not missing anything. Oh, Driving Miss Daisy, just as racially prescient as just really (laughs) just finger on the pulse of racial dynamics. That discourse came out in my 20s and I was like, I've never seen this, so I probably don't need to see it. So, yeah. yeah, not an essential watch in any way. <laughs> what do you no. think? It's best picture with, you know, no, a <laughs> horrid movie. So, Stephen, we got a chance to talk about our histories with this movie. What is your history with Do the Right Thing? And, and what stands out to you as some of the most evergreen themes in the film? Yeah. So, I also watched Do the Right Thing in college. Um, I think I just had some film buff friends who told me to watch it. Or maybe I just watched it. It was like the the golden age of like piracy. So I would just kind of torrent movies. And I knew who Spike Lee was kind of culturally because of just movies I had seen in like barbershops or salons or like at an uncle or aunt's house. And I knew that this was kind of the 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 masterpiece. You, you know, actually, my mom, she had the like a VHS of Malcolm X. And 
I, I think maybe somehow I knew who Spike Lee was because of that. But I just watched this of, of my own volition and I get or really understand it at first. I think I was definitely sucked in into its provocations and I was just really kind of frustrated by the ending and didn't really get it. And I think that also I, maybe I was 19. I already had a favorite Spike Lee movie, even though I'd only watched like four. Which is what? What's your favorite Spike Lee movie? Which was Inside Man, which is hilarious. Inside Man's in my top three. It's, it's good. It's really good, but it's not even really like, you know, like a Spike Lee joint. Right. So I was kind of coming at it like that. And then around the time that Red Hook Summer came out, I would have been a couple years older. I think that was 2012. And I just rewatched it and I was like, oh, I did not understand this movie. And I think, yeah, 2012, that's after Trayvon Martin is killed. And there had just been other kind of civil rights things going on. And I just had like a greater sensitivity to the, the movie's themes. And I think of the movie's many themes, just police brutality, that's probably the most resonant one, but also just like interracial relationships, community relationships, commercial relationships, neighborhood relationships, all those things are are just really resonant. You know, by 2012, I actually lived in New York. So I, and, and I lived in Bedside. So these things had even more context for me. It's interesting. There's kind of a sub theme of race relations in the neighborhood between minority groups, like the black people in the neighborhood and the Korean shop owner, which I always assumed happened after the LA riots or was like modeled after the LA riots because there was like a big conflict between, you know, uh, the uprising in, in LA and, and Korean shop owners. But this movie was made before that. What happened in LA? I mean, I wasn't there. I was still very young. But having learned more about it now, I think LA kind of like serves as a microcosm that is easily transferable to a neighborhood like Bed-Stuy, which I've spent some time into having lived in Brooklyn for many years. And it kind of starts out as like, well, uh, who can afford to live here? Who has like the most history here? And then like even... Um, a few years ago, my husband and I lived in West Adams for a little while in LA, and there was a real mix of like a Korean small business owners as well as like a predominantly black and Hispanic setting. And you could sense like the history mm-hmm. that came to a head, at least as far as LA goes. But I think that like a lot of neighborhoods like LA. And the race relations that we see, you know, 1989, bed like that, that could happen in many places where, you know, people are trying to live, survive, thrive and create something for themselves. But then it's like you get into a like, well, who deserves yeah. to be here? Right. Yeah. I think it's one of the strengths of the movie that it can have these moments of really intense conflict and tension and then immediately deflate them with a joke or, you know, a de-escalation or just a, a kind of shrug, like whatever, we live in the neighborhood. And I, I thought that was really cool. It it almost reminded me of, you know, school or, or work. You know, you can have you know someone who annoys you. Uh, maybe they like toe the line a lot with like very insensitive humor, but 
you know, there are circumstances in which you can deal with it, or maybe you like bite back at them or, you know, they're, they don't have anyone to like instigate and they're like, all right, chill out, chill out. Um, and I, I feel like that's really distinct because there are plenty of movies before I do the right thing that have inter-ethnic conflict. I mean, I think that that happens in like Scorsese movies for, for instance, hmm. but this just, it, it knew how intimate that conflict can be, you know, like when you really might hate someone, but they like live next door to you or you see them every day. Um, that, that's really different from them kind of being this abstraction. And that's where you have to buy milk and eggs, right? Like you're forced to interact. <laughs> hmm. Right. Or beer. Or beer. Do the right thing yeah. actually was yeah. inspired, is inspired by a real incident that happened in 1986. This is from the New York Times. Lee said that his idea for Do the Right Thing first germinated when he read news accounts of the 1986 incident in Howard Beach, Queens, where white youths attacked three black men, one of whom, Michael Griffith, was killed by a passing car as he sought to ex- escape his tormentors. At, at the end of the credits of Do the Right Thing, Lee includes a dedication to the family of Griffith and to the families of the other five black New Yorkers who died in the similar controversial circumstances. But rather than... Hold, this is still the New York Times, but rather than hold himself to the details of the Howard Beach assault by making a documentary, say, Lee used the incident to stimulate his imagination for, as he explained, quote, there's more opportunity in fiction. He has exploited these opportunities in a series of innovative departures. For example, he incorporates music. Using the aggressive sounds of rap to mark the pace of looming confrontations, and he splices up the narrative flow of his tale with ironic, overblown passages from characters talking directly to the camera. So this isn't a a movie review show, but I left kind of the movie review description in there, specifically the aggressive sounds of rap comment to give the sense of what the largely white monoculture was how they viewed groups like public enemy at the time. Mm -hmm. They also make mention of a now famous infamous trademarking Spike Lee's characters monologuing to the camera about what they really think about people of other races, which I don't, I don't know, man. Like even watching it in 2023, it still feels like as vital as this, you know, the, the like, mostly apocryphal story of like people thinking that the train is actually going to come through them in the movies in like the 1890s where like <laughs> there's like a film of a, of a train mm-hmm. entering a station and people are like oh my god it's going to hit us that feels like yeah what it must have been like watching that sequence and do the right thing in 1989 like oh my god they're like going to reach out and touch us in our souls mm-hmm. the thing i think i love the most about this movie is just like just this is just your average summer day in this mm-hmm. neighborhood. I once wrote a piece that was I was just going to profile a band, right? And then the day went nothing like I thought it would. Like the band was inappropriate mm-hmm. and I felt completely like my day had been like table flipped and I just walked out of there like what do I make of this? And so I'm not comparing my work to Spike Lee's. <laughs> But um, like the tonal shift that you get in this movie because you're experiencing this thing that is so horrifying that you the residents of the neighborhood 
sure they've heard about it, they've read about it, and now it's happening right here in front of them, and it's just like upended their entire day and week, etc. But it's like you're just kind of going along, living your life, and then everything changes in the matter a matter of seconds, and the audience and the community are just like having to live through it and process it in real time. So. I forget which one of you guys said it, but I think when I first watched Do the Right Thing, I thought it was an entirely different movie, too. I thought it was a comedy. I feel like we both kind of said that. Yeah, based on uh, based on the colors and the vivid the vivid colors that that get used and definitely like the art. And then, yeah, like if you have ever had like a day table flipped in a horrible way, (laughs) obviously there are different, you know, the spectrum of horrible is different for everybody, but. You don't see many pieces of art structured that way. Usually, you kind of know what you're getting. Yeah, and it so captures that that moment. Speaking of untold horrors, this is from Criterion. It's just a little bit more on what happened in Howard Beach. On December 20th, 1986, a mob of 12 angry white men chased down and beat three black men who had just left a pizzeria in the predominantly Italian-American community. During the pursuit, the mob forced one of their victims, Michael Griffith, to run onto the Belt Parkway where he was hit by a car and killed. In the behind the scenes footage of Do the Right Thing, Lee recalls protests led by Reverend Al Sharpton and the call for African-Americans to boycott white owned pizzerias. And this is what inspired the scene in which Buggin' Out instigates the boycott at Sal's for not having any black people on the walls. Sal's actually the first character that Lee sketched out when he was creating what would be his first masterpiece. But Spike Lee doesn't limit the themes of this film simply to an allegory of Howard Beach. He also discusses police brutality, which we had mentioned. But I wanted to ask, is there kind of an impish, gleeful, is there something to Spike Lee casting Danny Aiello's son as one of the cops? I don't know. It it feels like... It's an interesting detail when you read about it, like, oh, like, that's so clever. But I think when I read, like, contemporary or when I, like, have read contemporary interviews and stuff, it it just wasn't that big of a deal. It's that seems like something that was picked up on by viewers in just like returning to the film. What is interesting, though, is uh, I don't I think it was either The Guardian or The New York Times. I could find it. But there's an interview with the two ILOs, ILO Senior and or junior in the third one, one of them, both. Of them. I don't remember their exact titles, but I yellow the third who plays the cop. He was asked by a black interviewer. And I think this was on the 25th anniversary of do the right thing. You know, have you ever had like, you know, a cop kind of tell you like, Hey, um, I really liked your work in that. And he said, no, but, his dad, who plays Sal, says that he has had people who are like, yeah, you know, like Radio Rahim, like, deserve that. So there is, oh. like, yeah, so there is this interesting legacy of the portrayals of the characters. And even, you know, when the film was made, they were initially, it was initially going to be distributed or produced by Paramount. Mm-hmm. And they told Spike Lee, you know, this is great, but Sal and Mookie should hug at the end. And I think the the anecdote is they told Spike Lee that on Friday and by Monday he went to Universal. <laughs> because, I mean, that really, it's a different movie. It's really, really bizarre. And, and like, you know, 
there are studio notes that are absolutely this wild on anything that discusses race or or makes any one potentially even a little bit uncomfortable but like this movie is so good and the ending is so like feels inevitable and feels so perfect that like changing it to them like being like I don't like you, but goddamn, do I respect you? And hugging it out is like, would mm-hmm. completely, like, that is one of the worst notes I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I read somewhere that the vivid colors are meant to kind of like communicate how hot mm-hmm. of a day it is and that actual heat and like the lack of relief from it can just incite people's anger. They did a couple of tricks in the filming of it to make the heat more palpable. Mm -hmm. They use the color red a ton, which is like a very formalist filmic way to to show that there's like blood and passion and tensions arising. But they also they lit little sterno canisters like to keep their food hot at the catering thing they lit little sterno canisters underneath the camera like right in front of the lens to get the kind of waves of heat to rise through the camera to like create that kind of weird wobbly effect that you get when the blacktop's really hot and so they just Mm -hmm. like did that Mm. practically with like a two dollar can of sterno which i think is pretty impressive yeah yeah i watched the the making of do the right thing that is like a documentary that was filmed while it was being made. And one thing that struck me was that the way bedside looks in the documentary, it just, it looks very dry. Um, it looks very like kind of dusty. That's how I would describe it. But when you're watching the film, it looks very humid and very like sweltering and, and vivid. It really just uplifts the, the story. Enhances, and that's a better word, not uplifts. That sounds too positive. If there's, a, if there's one adjective I would use Editor to, at work. for do the right thing, it's uplifting. <laughs> I also wanted to get your both of your thoughts on Sal's conduct toward Jade, which is not something I picked up. I mean, I picked it up, but upon further watchings, I like realize how much of that is in Mookie's decision to throw the trash can and hmm. and how how white racists can or any racists of any kind can fetishize and also despise at the same time right like i think sal uh yeah fetishizes jade in that way yeah well i actually think that plays into the, the conversation between um is it pino is he the the older brother yeah uh, pino and Mookie's discussion of like Mookie being like, who are your favorite? Who's your favorite basketball player? Who's your favorite musician? And so on. And who's your favorite celebrity? And Pino lists all like black men. And then they have a whole debate around, well, like, how can you feel this way? But that be so like demeaning to your customers who come in the pizza shop every day. Right. This it's like an interesting divide, divergence of feeling there. Anyway, yeah, I guess I'll just answer your question. So I'm already like answering your question. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it too much because like when I watched that scene, I felt for Jade because I once went to a Who concert alone and I had like these old guys for lack of a better term like touching me trying to move past to get to their seat at madison square garden and 
I I just gotten like a press ticket and I'd always wanted to see the who. I mean, Jade, she doesn't seem to mind. She seems unthreatened. That might just be her way of getting through the day. So that's kind of how I read it. She's just getting through the day. She doesn't think like Sal is a threat, even if she like secretly doesn't like being objectified. And I think, you know, Mookie is obviously extremely protective and is like, Sal's going to try to do something to you. Whether or not that's true or actually going to happen is like left up in the air, but it does that that scene does capture a dynamic for sure where everybody's like assuming something of the other and mm-hmm. it, it kind of, I don't know it's like if the ending of the movie hadn't been the ending of the movie there might have yeah. been a different ending of the movie if you, if you know what I'm saying like it like these actions might escalate to like a different kind of violation yeah personally I've always thought of that moment similar to how Rachel thought of it um it's like paralleling Pino and Mookie's conversation in the sense that, you know, there's all this hostility towards blackness from Sal, you know, but he, he has kind of selected some people that he likes and Jade is among them. I, I always thought it was more paternalistic than sexualized, but I, I think that because it's also, I think there's a class element to it. Like, if you look at how Mookie's dressed, he's like very hip hop. You know, he's got on a Dodgers jersey. He, he's got on like Nike with high socks. He's very cool. He has like a, like stylized haircut. And Jade is, she's kind of got this like bohemian thing going on. When she comes to the shop, they talk about, she talks about working. Um, so I think there's this sense that like, oh, Jade has it together. She's not like this kind of street rat like Mookie and that's kind of how Sal is thinking about her but I think that Mookie definitely sees (laughs) greatest actor that's one of the funniest things about his his career is that like he's made some like very impressive movies and been in them and like they work right it's like he's also Uh, just there reading his lines and some of the best actors in the world are around him right right but i i do think that another dynamic that's playing out in the kind of jade mookie sal triangle is that sal when he talks about like seeing the kids in the neighborhood grow up and kind of like being this like um not like not trying to be like punny or whatever, but like Godfather, the <laughs> the neighborhood. There's a sense that he is also like looking past them and past who they are. And Mookie, in a moment of kind of awareness, is like, "Hey, it feels like Sal is being nice to you, Jade, but he's actually kind of thinking that he's Santa Claus and not like recognizing his relationship to you." So I, I, I to answer, I think that he is being a little creepy. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like someone at work being like, yeah, I'm like your work husband or something like that. Yeah, that like right. it's that it's like that kind of creepy. I don't think he would make a move or anything. But also in Jungle Fever, I'm pretty sure the the main actress in that is Italian. And I, and I do think that in, in Brooklyn, like the black Italian American relationship is something Spike Lee is just very interested in over the course of his career. That's yeah, certainly true. And his, he has like a good kind of professional relationship with Martin Scorsese, who's on the other side of that 
perspective, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting that they're like friends. <laughs> there is this kind of bookend punctuation, not just of fight the power, but of this idea of Malcolm and Martin, where Smiley gives his pitch, which is that, you know, Malcolm and Martin were friends, but we like to paint them as enemies. And it kind of power, and, and he hangs the picture of Malcolm and Martin in Sal's on the wall as it's burning, which I guess was the actor came up with that on the spot or like on the day. But this also parallels kind of Radio Rahim, who does like a, a riff on Night of the Hunter, where Robert Mitchum has like love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. He's got these like brass knuckles that say love and hate on them. Hate's got love against the ropes, but love's gonna, gonna fight back. So I think that this Malcolm and Martin thing is something that culturally has been stolen, bastardized, manipulated into this parallel that that we with a, this evergreen parallel that we always go back to you know charles xavier and magneto are supposed to be malcolm mex and martin luther king like but this this is saying something different i think what what is your reading on this malcolm martin love and hate these two crossroads that we see in in this film you know just thinking about all of the like stylistic and narrative choices that Spike Lee's making in this there, you know, there's just this emphasis on synthesis um, while maintaining difference like throughout the movie. And I mean, that that's like embedded in fight the power, you know, it's like this militant jam, you know, but also there's just this sense that to put it bluntly, like Spike Lee is like making this movie like it's set in bedside, which is like a ethnically and racially mixed neighborhood, but it's like about like black issues and like black concerns that that stuff is really foregrounded. And I think that he was just trying to make the point, especially like in the, in the context of life that these kind of urges to be nonviolent, be violent, to defend yourself, to assert your love, to assert your like connections to community, that those are in everyone. And I, I think some people might see that as like, I don't know, kind of hippy dippy or something. But I think that like he's really just claiming two figures that were often opposed. And you know what's funny? And Professor X, because now even in the comics, this idea that they have to be together and that you need both to like advance your community, like that's made it into like modern like X Men comics. Like Charles Xavier and Magneto are allies, and that that was always like a theme. There was kind of almost this like bromance like over the years, um, like will they, won't they? But now it's like they so will, and, and that's interesting to me that. I'm not saying like Spike Lee did that, but he understood that like this is, you know, these are not polar opposites. These are comrades. And I think he sees that in all the relationships throughout this Bed-Stuy neighborhood. I mean, when Mookie walks down the street, he he talks to so many people. He he sees so many things, you know, mother, sister, and the mayor who are married in real life, Ossie Davis and, and Ruby D. No, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And, you know, they come together despite their differences. And then, like, Radio Rahim and then the Puerto Rican dude who is, like, playing um, some type of music. I don't know. He's playing, like, like, type of music. Yeah, Pachaba music yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, they, like, have their little clash, but it's still, like, well, we live in the same neighborhood. And it's, like, not a big deal. So, 
And, and even you know, bugging out and Radio Rahim have their little moment up against the wall. And I think that that that's what he's getting at. Like these things, these core attentions, are, they're, they're embedded in, in all relationships. And I think that that is super evident in the moment of Radio Rahim's death, where he's choked out by Rick Aiello. He falls to the ground and Bill Nunn, you know, no one could play dead like Bill Nunn, I guess. You know, his eyes are wide open and you see one of his hands still in the frame and it's it's the love hand. Right. So it's still like Spike Lee is saying, you know, there's never one without the other or or this is what they're taking from us. It's a really emotional moment of the film. Yeah. Radio Rahim's final words, I, you can't make this up, man, are I can't breathe. Yeah. Which is an eerie pre-echo to the 2014 police killing of Eric Garner, who is like similarly built to Bill Nunn, Radio Rahim, and mm-hmm. who died under very similar circumstances and had the same last words. So we talked a little bit about the evergreen nature of this film. So that incident in 2014, in addition to the uprising as a result of the murder of George Floyd in 2020, led you to write an essay for Pitchfork about Do the Right Thing and specifically Fight the Power and how it is, you called it a a snow globe? Yeah. Explain to us the snow globe please. So the snow globe of do the right thing. So in the piece, I was, you know, I'm writing in 2020, like 31 years after this movie came out, but I was also just thinking about how there've been like multiple cycles of how the movie has been remembered. And on the 25th anniversary, there was an interview, I think with maybe MTV news with the Obamas and apparently uh, Barack and Michelle Obama like first date was to go see do the right thing and the kind of quote that came out of that was Barack Obama said that it it still holds a mirror up to our society and he he said that's how he felt then and so I just thought of it as a snow globe because I mean first of all like a snow globe is like constructed and it's artificial and I wanted to like keep that in mind even though Spike Lee is it's got bits of allegory it's got bits of realism you know he dedicates it to real victims of violence in New York. And, you know, those names are like said explicitly, et cetera, et cetera. It it takes place in the real world. There's still this sense that like, this is a vision of like what a neighborhood is. And, you know, when I think of a snow globe, I think of this thing that you can like hold in your hands and really appreciate its, its detail and its color, but also it's something you control. And that's, what's cool about Spike Lee. He didn't just make this like, ode to blackness you know like black is beautiful or something like that he he held in his hands and he like shook it um and he he doesn't like smash it on the ground or anything you know but he just understands that like this is this is like very fragile and i think that's just more there's more care in that metaphor than just calling it a mirror i don't know when i watch this movie and when i especially after living in bedside like as a person who is black but who is not from Bed-Stuy, you know, I might be like at a bar or something or like at the park and there's like some type of festival. I remember one day I woke up or no, I came home from work and there was just like a block party. And I was like, I didn't know about <laughs> this. Um, and that's cool. And it's like, well, this isn't my neighborhood. 
you know, I live here, I'm black, I blend in, but like, I'm not, I don't have roots here. And I think that's kind of what I want to get at. Like I watch do the right thing and I like understand things about the world, but I also understand things about this like specific experience of being black and young and like loving hip hop in New York city and how in that moment in in the eighties, it felt like all these things that outsiders loved about your city, they didn't like love about you. And I think that's what, you know, that's what makes it a snow globe. I want to touch on something you said about the neighborhood itself and, and the time. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I had some overlap in the time that we both lived in mm -hmm. New York and Brooklyn. And by the time I got there, Brooklyn was the borough everyone was mm -hmm. walking to try to live in. But in 1989, when Do the Right Thing takes place, these neighborhoods like Sal and his sons are talking about where they live, mm -hmm. Bensonhurst, and, and should they move their pizzeria to Bensonhurst. Like, you get the sense that the neighborhoods are more segmented, certainly, and segregated, of course. But, like, I guess the neighborhoods feel more, like, close-knit, right. microcosmic. Right. People grow up and never leave their mm -hmm. neighborhood, even though they're just technically a train ride away from Manhattan or Queens. And I think that that is something, maybe it's come back a little bit just in the wake of the pandemic mm -hmm. and then people living more localized lives. But I think this focus on bed captures like a, a neighborhood that a lot of people in Manhattan, for example, aren't thinking about day to day. They certainly will never go right. to. And I think to add to the snow globe <laughs> analogy, uh, that's kind of what I think of. I would also like to add to the snow globe analogy. I, I would like to. I would like to. <laughs> it's a good, it's yeah, a good I analogy. I would like to take it almost literally because it feels like, even though this is basically like six blocks, six square blocks of this neighborhood, it feels like if any of the characters venture too far past Sal's, they will run into a glass wall that they can't get through it it feels like 100%. they are so, they are trapped by the heat by the mm. geography by everything in a way that is never explicit but through the filmmaking through uh, you know everything about this movie feels like they are imprisoned in this neighborhood and yet sal and his sons live in bensonhurst and the cops can come and go as they please Hmm. And they get to leave. Yeah, yeah. Sal gets to leave. The cops get to come and go. And so it seems to and be. And so old. does that gentrifier guy. And so does that gentrifier Cause he's, guy. Because he's like, I can live here. It's a free country, but not for everybody. Yeah, but they don't have the choice. And so it feels like because, as you mentioned, this is like, this is a, a story of black issues. It feels like the the black characters in the movie are the ones that are trapped. And the white characters are like, well, why can't I have this neighborhood too? Mm -hmm. it's gentrification and it's also like something that spaces that we're seeing encroached upon in all different ways racial gender sexual politics today that's like this is always what the kind of the colonizers will say is like well why can't i just have this place too if it's a free mm -hmm. country right but free for whom free for whom so in my head as a writer mm -hmm. you know radio rahim is killed we we learn the lesson of the movie. The camera flies up on a crane and we cut to black and the credits roll. But that's not actually how it happens in the movie. We get an extra scene 
of Mookie showing up the, the following day to get his money from Sal. And Sal freaks out and like throws him hundreds of dollars because his entire life is ruined. Why are you why are you showing up for your paycheck? And, and yet he take- has hundreds of dollars to throw. So I want to unpack, just as this discussion of colonizers is ending, I want to kind of unpack, like, why doesn't Mookie take that money? Well, I mean, he does, but he does it, like, begrudgingly. But uh, does does he not take all of it? No, he's like, I'll give you change, right? Mm. I think that that is, like, you know, Spike Lee is kind of, like, a sentimentalist, honestly. Like, he... He's willing to provoke you, but he he doesn't want to lose you. And it's funny to think about the reaction to the movie, even though it it does have these what some people would call like concessionary gestures. But I think there's also just this sense that like and Mookie says it. He's like, all right, Sal, you lost your restaurant, but like they fucking killed Radio Rahim. And he like he has to say that multiple times because Sal still doesn't understand. He's sitting in his business not thinking, I can't believe this one interaction became this big thing. He's more like, oh, I can't believe they did this to me. Right. And I think that no one but Mookie could return (laughs) a mercenary way, like give me my fucking money Um, and then get paid double. (laughs) Be like, well, okay, um, I I do need the money because like, you know, he, he's told Tina he's going to come back and he also now does. And I, I think that that is, I don't know. There's almost like this sense that like, well, Sal, now you're really part of the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. And, and Mookie doesn't want to take anything that's not his, right? He's like, I, you, you owe me four. He's all about his money for the entire movie, but he's like, you owe me 40. All I want is 40. Like, don't, don't make a big fucking show about it. Like, this is, this is what I earned. This is what you owe me. This isn't like, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that this is like a fucking master. I love this movie so much. And with that, unfortunately, we'll have to move, move on away from the movie because I could probably talk about it for 17 hours. Um, and talk about our song. Yeah, there's there's too much rich ground to cover with both of these subjects, with both the movie and the song. I want to move us over to the first time we hear Fight the Power, which almost the whole song plays in the opening credits of the movie. And then it, it comes back as like a light motif uh, numerous times, thanks to Radio Rahim and the Boombox. But can we talk about the significance of opening the movie in this way, where it looks like 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 a theater set, practically mm-hmm. like a stage play, and kind of what you both make of that? And I'm asking this to both of you because, like, I am you know I'm prepared to talk all day about Public Enemy, the band, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but. I would love to just like pick both of your brains about the significance of like the visual. We see uh, Rosie Perez's character, Tina, like she almost gets a lot more agency in the beginning of the movie when she's dancing. Oh, yeah. As opposed to the almost little to no agency she gets as a character in the remainder of the movie. After you. Um, (laughs) So. Yeah, I mean, what? There's just a lot going on in that opening scene. So, first, the movie like it technically opens the first sounds you hear are 
or like a melodic version of lift every voice and sing. And then it just, you know, transitions into public enemy. And then, you know, public enemy at the time, public, public enemy even now has like a funny reputation, right? Like, and I, I didn't even realize my understanding of it until I was reading this essay by the late Greg Tate. And I don't, I think he wrote it in the nineties. It was, he was reviewing a public enemy concert and he called public enemy like a kind of inside joke in the sense that like, you know, they are militant. They, they all have all these black national ideas, black nationalist ideas. And then, you know, there's flavor flavor right there. Mm-hmm. And the court I, jester, I, I always right. see him referred to as. Yeah. And it's like, no, actually, well, you know, there's like a dialectic there, you know, it's like flavor flavor. He is like, he is there not to like lessen Chuck D's militants, but because, you know, he is like the other side of it. You know, he's like, like if, if Chuck D is rapping about like freedom and agency, like flavor flavor has it, you know, like it is outfits, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, having that reputation for public enemy and then having Rosie Perez, like, fucking like dance her ass off you know and and like all these like the way it's shot and the and just her her actual movements they're they're just so interesting like when you think of a public enemy concert you probably think of like a bunch of like dudes like nodding their heads or something maybe you think of a mosh pit um but you definitely don't think of like rosie perez like like throwing her like one person soul train line and you know, that's what she's doing. So that, that alone is like very subversive. It's like the public enemy. And then like this, like Puerto Rican woman. And, you know, it, it just feels like super New York, uh, especially uh, as Rachel was saying with the, the like stage set behind it. And then her outfits change, you know, she's in like a leotard, she's in a dress and she's like in um, like a boxing robe. It's just like really, um, I don't want to say it's like nightmarish, but like cool. Like if nightmares were like really tight, um, just, just like intensity of the, the colors. If nightmares um, were really tight. <laughs> and it just, it just sets the tone for like all the other kind of subversions and, and flips that happen in the movie. And I feel like, you know, just thinking about how, rap songs are constructed back then often on samples um like public enemy they were like um sorry to like keep making x-men references i'm a huge nerd <laughs> please go but they were just like the mutants of of sampling like if you look at the, just how many songs would be sampled in like one public enemy song um it's just like this bass line this like drum kick this um guitar riff and that might be like four seconds of a song so dense and packed and bustling and like their their songs you know they 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 feel sweaty you know and but they but they also feel like really cool especially this song i couldn't agree more and i think that the opening sequence from like a film analysis standpoint is the exact same thing right we talked about how spike lee is is always about kind of synthesizing things that don't necessarily belong together 
And so we can talk about kind of the dialectical nature of like lift every voice and sing, fight the power, right? Movie on the whole where we start on this very kind of Sesame Street looking stage set of a stoop and then we're in real Brooklyn. This is real fucking life. And we are mashing up, uh, like, as you said, a Puerto Rican woman dancing to a public enemy song in a, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And to me, I had to actually look this up to make sure I had the timing right. This always reminded me of the beginning of the Cosby show with uh, Bill Cosby and Felicia Rashad dancing, changing outfits. And you see the same kind of decapitation of the different body parts in the dancing and so to me he's like this isn't the fucking cosby show you just exploded (laughs) my fucking mind oh my god (laughs) oh man and this might be me reading too far into it like the casting of rick aiello but like to me this is like this is what he's saying with the movie is like all of these i'm mixing up all of these things much like public enemy is taking all of these samples from black culture he's doing it from black culture, but public enemy is doing it from everywhere. And he's mashing up all these things to create something that beyond any comprehension is the realist thing. Hmm. Right. He's, he's taking all these fake things and making them real, which I think is like part of the magic of this movie. That is chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And something we haven't really talked about much yet, but I was hoping we could is like the divergence in generations even within like different racial communities. So like, for example, the DJ isn't, he's mostly playing like older music by black Mm -hmm. creators, like jazz and soul, but still a lot, you know, a lot of these artists created protest music. It's just that public enemy and like-minded artists are kind of picking up the baton and it's this evolution from one era to the next and like that that's something i thought a lot about while especially researching the beginning of public enemy and what they were doing and how they picked up the baton from grandmaster flash and the furious five and then the evolution prior with like like disco and soul and so on and back and back Mm -hmm. and is that something either of you guys thought about, like from a music angle, while like absorbing this movie? A little bit, and I think that that's also reflected in um, Samuel L. Jackson's DJ character's clothing because mm. he dresses kind of like Flavor Flav. He he ha- has these loud patterns, these hats and shorts and and floral shirts, and sometimes he's wearing this kind of black is beautiful patterns from the seventies, and then he's very nineties. Rachel and Stephen, I will give each of you, either of you, a hundred dollars if you can tell me what his character's name is. Oh, it's like Senior. No, it's oh, Mr. Senior Daddy Love. Mr. Senior. Oh, I just I just saved myself some money. It's actually Mr. Senior Love Daddy. <laughs> oh fuck. I thought I had you. Damn. You 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 I got nervous for a second. Yeah, Mr. Senior Love Daddy. And so I think he is like a really yeah, a really interesting character and the, and what he spins obviously parallels the plot of the movie but also the themes in the way that you're talking about yeah i i found it interesting like he like in the scene where he lists off every like 
black singer in the of the time, there's really no hip hop mentioned. Yeah, there's there's just like a few artists yeah. he mentions. He says Statasonic. He says Cool Mo D. It's just like it, he and he does say Chuck D and um, Public Enemy, but his it, you never get the sense that the radio station would play that music. Like the the posters that are on his wall are mm-hmm. Keith Sweat, Whitney Houston, and and someone else. So there there is this like clear generational divide. And then when Radio Rahim is like walking past the like Greek chorus of like black dudes, old black dudes. You know, they like roast him. They're like, turn that mm-hmm. shit off. But they also like tolerate him. I think that's one of the, the cool yeah. things about how it kind of represents hip hop. It's like hip hop was not like this like multi generational movement, especially and even in the place where it originated. You know, this was like mm-hmm. youth culture and like some people didn't like it. Statasonic mm-hmm. is really funny because they, they were one of the first groups to get like sued and kind of dissed for sampling and they had a song about it where they like defended sampling in like the late 80s but yeah that you know it's funny until this most recent viewing i hadn't even really paid attention to that scene um where he he, i mean he truly lists so many people he says luther vandross count basie like uh sly stallone james brown Mm -hmm. um and as I think Aviv was saying earlier, maybe it was Rachel, as somebody was saying earlier, you know, a lot of these artists are like, they helped lay down what we think of as like the, the protest canon. Mm-hmm. And in Public Enemy is like the, I don't know, like the, the tip of the spear at that point, but they are connected through to that lineage and the music is acknowledging that and, and, and playing with that tension. Yeah, I found myself thinking about how relatively new this brand of expression was, Public Enemies, when Do the Right Thing came out. And mm-hmm. I thought I thought about that especially because I've thought about Public Enemies' history and hip-hop's history with the Recording Academy, with these institutions that represent music status quo and like who deserves awards and i might be going off on a tangent now but i worked at the recording academy for two years and kind of got a chance to like up close see the same resistance Mm. to different or new genres i I won't get too specific uh i we can talk about it more off the record but it was really easy to see that history. I mean, today, of course, they're like, let's, let's throw every era of rap on stage and make like an homage to 50 years of rap and like really celebrate it and pretend that we never were resistant to, yeah. to, we've always been it. a friend to rap. Yes. <laughs> we've <laughs> <But>, been. <laughs> yeah. So that, that aside, I was thinking about that a lot. And mm-hmm. at the time, like new, this movement and this way of presenting music was. And to that end, I'm going to run through a, a short history of the beginning of Public Enemy, if that Please sounds do. good. Yeah. I am, so, I am woefully uneducated on Public Enemy. Public Enemy doesn't really begin as Public Enemy. It really begins more with Chuck D uh, performing like at parties, like basement parties, kind of like the grandmaster flash origin story of being in apartments and just like performing in really small settings with your friends so chuck d meets 
Flavor Flav at uh, Adelphi University in uh, Long Island. And, but Chuck D is also active at his college radio station, which as a former college DJ myself, thought that was awesome. I did not actually realize that until I went to do the deep dive. And so he and a few other people in his circle, they form, it's called Spectrum City. It's like a, a group and they make like a tape to play on the, the radio station and it's called public enemy number one. And it airs on the student run station WBAU. And uh, around this time, a small time producer <laughs> called Rick Rubin. Who? Here's that. Never <laughs> here's that tape. <laughs> and he's getting ready to form uh, Def Jam records, a small label <laughs> called Def Jam records. <laughs> and he wants to sign Chuck D. And he kind of does this with a guy named Bill Stephanie, who knew Chuck also through radio connections. And Chuck will only sign if he gets to bring along Spectrum City, uh, as well as Flavor Flav. And they add a DJ named Terminator X to round out the team. Can we pause just for a second? Yeah. So I know how much you love the Terminator movies. Rachel. I do love the Terminator. And so clearly Terminator (laughs) X is a reference to the Terminator, which had come out like a year or two before that. And then in Terminator 2, John Connor wears a public enemy shirt for the entire movie. Oh my God. Yes. I forgot about that. Wow, I just watched that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. He does. Yes. It's so good. I love that. Thank you for thank you for drawing that circle. Sorry. Unpause. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Chuck D also loops in Richard Professor Griff, and he is the now the group's minister of information. So we have a whole group together now. And by this point, we're in the mid eighties, around nineteen eighty six. And uh, I, I just want to read a quote from what Chuck D said about changing their name to Public Enemy. He has said, uh, the United States Constitution once considered black people to be three-fifths of a human being. If this is a public document, obviously we must be the enemy. So that's where the name Public Enemy came from. Cool. And in addition to doing this like really cool like patchwork of sampling and like just drawing from like every different era of music for the time, which is interesting because like I talk about this a lot in for more contemporary pop music where like we now live in this genreless space where people just like cherry pick their favorite genres and put and throw it all together. And then we get things like hyper pop and like emo rap and country rap and so on. And I feel like it's a, it's just this, a same kind of idea as like what was happening with taking samples and mixing it all together to create this entirely new thing. So anyway, Public Enemy also is one of, not the first, but one of the first uh, hip-hop groups to have this distinctly political style, uh, which we talked about earlier when we were talking about like the kind of like togetherness of Chuck D and Flavor Flav, who I I think they performed together for the first time in many, many years at that aforementioned Grammys celebration of hip hop, if mm. I'm not mistaken. Well, we had to cover it, of course, for Stereo Gum, where I work. And um, my boss was like, are Chuck D and Flavor Flav on stage together? It hasn't happened in a long time. Anyway, <laughs> so Public Enemy, they spend their early years opening for Beastie Boys on 
their license to ill tour. They release a debut album, Yo Bum Rush the Show, in 87, and then release a sophomore album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, the following year, in 88. And uh, around this around this time, they're preparing to open for Run DMC uh, on the European leg of their tour. And Spike Lee comes to them with a request. Could they write a song for his upcoming movie, Do the Right Thing? And the track was intended to be, like we've talked about, a leitmotif about racial tension in Brooklyn. And Spike Lee told Time Magazine around the time, I wanted it to be defiant. Actually, he might have said this more a little later in like 2008. Uh, but he did tell Time Magazine, I wanted it to be defiant. I wanted it to be angry. I wanted it to be very rhythmic. And I thought right away of Public Enemy. And I think, Stephen, you talked about this earlier. The theme song was originally meant to be like a jazz reimagining of uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Mm-hmm. And Lee also got Terrence Blanchard. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Blanchard. Terrence Blanchard on deck Blanchard, to, yeah. Yeah, to compose for the film. And Hank Shockley, who is now part of the Bomb Squad, the production team that Public Enemy uses. So Spectrum City turns into the Bomb Squad. And Hank Shockley says, no, uh, this wouldn't really resonate with like fans of songs like Bring the Noise, Night of the Living Bassheads. So then we get what eventually becomes uh, what you hear in the movie. So in your essay, you talked about how the score was fundamental to making the movie work. And, and we wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about the film score apart from the public enemy moment. Right, right. Yeah, so there's kind of these like thematic matches between character or scene and music. Like most of, I think the score, I I don't know who was the music supervisor, but I know that Spike Lee's dad, Bill Lee, um, provides a lot of the music and he's a jazz musician and he did quite a few of the arrangements, I believe. And, you know, there's just kind of like elegance um, and kind of, sophistication to some of the the moments in the street like when um Ossie Davis's character the mayor and and Ruby D are are interacting there's you know the music is like very soft and there's it kind of plays on their kind of love hate relationship and then when bugging out Giancarlo Esposito's character is on screen that's it's like there's more drums and and more percussion so there's this idea through the music that you know everyone lives together but they all have different relationships to the the block and to what's happening there oh and and when the like old not old guy well they're they're older but freaking phase on his character and then I forget the other guy's names. I just, I, I'm a big fan of The Wire, so I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when the, the Greek chorus is assembled, they also get kind of jazzier music. Mm. Um, so the score is just, yeah, just under, underscoring all of the different people that live in the community and their just kind of different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. That jazziness is what I, associate Terrence Blanchard with a lot. He does a lot of Spike Lee films. He did uh, Black Klansman as well. And I, I just hear when I think of him, lots of bright jazzy horns, which mm-hmm. you hear a lot in, in Do the Right Thing as well. I didn't mention, but Fight the Power kind of gets its name from the Isley Brothers Fight the Power Part 1 and 2, which 
sort of calls back to what I was talking about earlier with like the different connections of eras mm-hmm. from like disco to funk, jazz, and then up and up and up. And so I like that kind of callback because like all of these like more melodic eras of music are still so like top. Like this is what Chuck D no doubt grew up listening to. Mm-hmm. And in 2008, he said, I wanted to have the same theme as the original Fight the Power by the Isley Brothers and fill it in, in with some modernist views of what our surroundings were at that particular time. And while I'm reading quotes, I wanted to read something from You Discover Music. And this is by Jerry Barrow, who I thought captured the essence pretty nicely. Not only was it a signpost of the times, Fight the Power was a blueprint for serving music with a message to the 80s babies held hostage by R&B, meaning Reagan and Bush. Uh, As the rhythm designed to bounce, what counts is that the rhymes designed to fill your mind, quoting from the song. Chuck wrote the lyrics on a flight over Italy flanked by members of Run DMC. But even thousands of miles away from the inspiration, he channeled the tension and rebelliousness of his New York of his native New York in every word. Incidents like the arrest and incarceration of the former Central Park Five fueled his biting critique of the justice system and the institutionalized racism that buoyed it. In a song brimming with rage, the scathing third verse is probably the most famous, taking aim at icons like Elvis and John Wayne in an act of generational defiance. Amidst this hypnotizing groove, they sent a message from Generation X that we would get some of our heroes on that wall of fame or we'd burn the place down. We're going to take a quick break and afterwards we'll talk about the different uses of Fight the Power and Do the Right Thing and the film and song's legacy in pop culture and the culture at large. We'll be right back. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I actually like wanted to, I don't think we really talked yet. We've talked so much about the film, but when I first reached out to you, Stephen, you mentioned like, oh, this is fate. I just bought uh, Fear of a Black Planet on vinyl. And could you like spend a little time like just talking about any personal connection you have to Public Enemy and like how they like, did they get you into like an era of music when you were growing up? And like, what did that look like for you? Right. So I'm pretty sure my introduction to Public Enemy was through a Saul Williams sample. And before that, I think I knew Flavor Flav from like Flavor of Love. And then I like had like a Eureka moment where I was like, what? That guy was oh. <laughs> in Public Enemy. And that that's truly how it happened for me. And then You're I, in, it's I, a safe space because I think Aviv and I both had the exact same. same I had no idea that Flavor of Love, Flavor Flav was part of Public Enemy for years. I did not put the two together. Yeah, I I mean, I was a heavy rap listener, but it was not like sanctioned by my parents. So I didn't have like an older brother or like some like older friend who I could just like 
nerd out about music with. That didn't really happen until college. So my whole like lineage is just like super, it's, it's a chronological. When I'm in college, I'm like getting into Saul Williams. His album, he's an album produced by Trent Reznor, The Rise and Inevitable Liberation of Niggy Tardus, which years later I realized that was like a reference to like David Bowie. Right. Um, but that, you know, that's the fun thing about music. You, you dig into it. You, you find the layers. But anyway, it has a sample of a public enemy song on there. And from there, I listen to their like canonical albums. And I didn't really get it because I think with rap, especially just like vocal styles evolve so much between generations. I just remember thinking like, Oh, this guy's like talking. He's not even rapping. And, um, I eventually got it and I like went back and, and listened to public enemy. And now I just have a real appreciation for what they were doing on a lot of levels. Like if you, I think uh, honestly, a lot of like contemporary rappers would struggle to find the pockets that Chuck D has. Like he doesn't really like rhyme strictly to the meter. Like he will kind of ride some of the, the sample riffs or or rhythms um and there's not a like like a lot of melody and it's like if you just even just try to sing along it's it's very difficult um and it's just impressive that he could do that and yeah i'm not sure when i had my like i need to listen to public enemy moment but i'm having mine right now (laughs) (laughs) but but like as a rap critic you quickly learn that like to get what's going on now you need to understand what was going on back then so at, at some point i just like did the work mm. um but to go back to your original question yeah. so um, you know they have public enemy is like one of those groups that had like a really kind of interesting discography especially early in their career where they between albums they are like really kind of shedding their skin and becoming something else like every album and i think that even though fight the power appears on the end of Black planet um, they were still kind of in, it takes a nation of millions to hold its back mode. And it's just like the, the music at that time was just like really abrasive, but also like very coherent and very fluid. And also it's just kind of hitting all these registers of like, there's like this element of like agitprop and then there's kind of a slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like this this hardness like this was this was music made to like galvanize you and make you like want to do things and it's i think that's like the run dmc and like def jam influence where you know there's just like the sense that like rock I mean, i'm saying rock but really i mean like metal and but i don't like literally mean metal i just mean how people thought of metal is it like loud and furious distorted yeah yeah yeah, like that idea was like in rap, but especially like Public Enemy, where it's like this needs to like it needs to like scare your grandparents, you know. <laughs> and that is kind of the the mode that Public Enemy was in. But like within that, like when you listen closely, like there are all these other elements of like like comedy and blues and and rock and and all these things. Yeah, there's like there's a celebration of uh, what came before, but they're just like putting it in a martini shaker and mm-hmm. shaking it up. And I feel very similarly what what you said about kind of having to start from 
a point and then move back. That's kind of what I had to do too. Mm-hmm. I remember when I worked at Spin in like 2014, I was familiar with all of the contemporary, basically from what I grew up with, mm-hmm. like Coolio and Puff Daddy and on <laughs> and Jay-Z and everything from that like mid 90s era and up. And then I kind of had to work backward if I wanted. And, and I will... I will say for the record, I'm not a rap critic, but I can write informatively about, you know, because I'm a very diligent researcher. And so making these connect, I was a huge like soul fan mm-hmm. and listened to like a lot of Motown and listened to a lot of Sam Cooke in particular. And mm-hmm. so kind of around like 10 years ago, when I'm more at the start of my journalism career i kind of started making like building those connections i think and even just researching this episode Mm -hmm. it was kind of fascinating to draw that through line of like even though rap sound it's it began to sound so different in the 90s like when i was cognizant paying attention listening to the radio like there's that that through line from like public enemy to to tupac and specifically like Stephen, you you mentioned the song the 1991 track violent that he did and and then like talib Quelli and ice cube and common and ice t and then moving up to more of the last 15 years with like kendrick lamar i i also was really fascinated to uh, to kind of look at like public enemies effect on like feminist rappers like like Queen Latifah and Lauren Hill and then more contemporarily like No Name and Rhapsody and Jean Grey who I had not really Another X-Men reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's so, wow, this is like the hidden theme in today's episode is is definitely X-Men. Or rap loves Marvel comics. Yeah. Real quick like I did think in the interest of fight the power and like just the messaging and kind of like pushing back against a system and an authority, I thought it might be good to like quickly dedicate a small section. Like I was talking before about Public Enemy and I think hip hop's overall tension with the Recording Academy. And like, I actually, I didn't even realize until I started researching that like Fight the Power was nominated for a Grammy. They didn't win. Uh, but the category that they were nominated in, like, wasn't even, it was, like, only a year old at the time. So, like, th- like the Recording Academy didn't even really recognize mm. rap officially until, like, 1989. Yet they only, they only really awarded Grammys to artists that wouldn't scare your grandmother, like, with messaging mm-hmm. <laughs> that wouldn't scare your grandmother. Right. And yeah, so and so Public Enemy and Chuck D, like, they boycotted the Recording Academy and the Grammys, even though they were nominated. Mm-hmm. But like, they, they were like, yeah, you don't, this, this isn't for us. I think the year Fear of a Black Planet was nominated, they uh, boycotted alongside like Shanae O'Connor. Probably different reasons, but <laughs> ultimately the same reason. Anytime you're on the side of Shanae O'Connor, you're probably on the right yeah. side. <laughs> yeah. To Steven's point about Fight the Power sounding a little bit more like it belongs on and takes a nation of millions to hold us back, the Fight the Power was the first single from Fear of a Black Planet, and it came out just a little under six months after the last single from 
nation of millions so black steel in the hour of chaos was released january 6 1989 and then fight the power i don't think this is a coincidence came out july 4th 1989 so i think that they are just as kind of didactic as as spike lee but you had mentioned that it is a mix of these all these things put together there is comedy and metal and rock and roll and rap and politics and everything and i think that that is why it makes or this this usage so appropriate for so many different points in the movie we talked about kind of the the first usage the main usage which is the dance number but it's used diegetically i want to say like a dozen times throughout mm-hmm. the movie every time you see radio rahim we're hearing fight the power. So I wanted to ask you both how, like we rarely get a needle drop that happens so many times mm. in a film. What do we think it is about this song or this film that makes it so gratifying to hear it so many times? I would say that what feels like gratifying about it is that one, it's just like a very dynamic, song um and it has like lots of different sections and movements and as you hear across the film you're just like wow this song has so many different parts and they i know the the album version and the version in the movie are like they have like differences like the version in the movie is like jazzier um it has like less scratches like um dj scratches and then it's like radio rahim isn't even always listening to the same part that's like so tight that this song he just like really inhabits it and other people inhabit it. Like my favorite use outside of the, the opener is when bugging out and radio Rahim, who kind of like have these different ideas of like, just like inhabiting their blackness and like feel differently about like who is threatening it. They, they come together and they're like leaning on this wall that has like graffiti on it and the song's playing and they have a conversation about the song so it's like, been, like there have been lots of reactions to the song but this is like the first conversation about it and bugging out is like why, why are you always playing this you don't have any other tapes and Rio Rahim is like I don't like nothing else and it's just like man like this guy as kind of a nuisance uh, even though he's like treated as a nuisance and like maybe he seems like a little obsessive it's like no this is like actually a very kind of i don't know like innocent obsession you know he just likes this song he it's in his head this is his earworm and i feel like that really once i got that in you know my like reading or my viewings after the first one it just like totally unlocks everything because so much of the movie just it depends honestly on how you feel about radio rahim and this song and like i think that's what you get in people's reaction to it like there's this round table published in the new york times from like 1989 and it has like henry lewis gates and then like a judge from the bronx and then some like harvard academics and like some like civil rights oh and and then crazily has like betty shabazz malcolm x's widow they're having this conversation about this song and there's a lot of people, I mean, this is 1989, so they're just like giving how they feel. And people are saying, oh, like, uh, oh, this movie is dangerous. Oh, you know, I thought Sal was very sympathetic, blah, blah, blah. And you realize like, man, like this song 
in all these scenes, all these separate disparate scenes, it's like really like bringing this person to life. And so even like after he dies, when the song is playing in the like burnt down pizza shop, you know, there's this sense that like, oh, like this is what it was really about. Like he, this song was like his legacy, his memento, like his, his presence. And it, you get that even when you're hearing like different parts of the song and when you're seeing like different interactions with people and that, you know, that's what makes it so cool and powerful. To me, this song represents practically everything that I love about music in general. I kind of grew up listening to a lot of punk rock and I still, that's still one of my go-to genres and periods of music history. And the messaging I think is, genreless it's poetry i mean yes the song structure is totally new at, for for the time but i think my favorite part of it and moving the movie forward is just the wake up and look like i think even in the film they say wake up mhm samuel jackson's character says that yeah and i also i just think we like we've always lived in a time, the United States in particular, where we need to be questioning the uh, powers that be. But I think now more than ever, without going into an entire diatribe, I was like, this is all pretty self-evident and I'm preaching to the choir. But I, I think since the day I like graduated from college, like I graduated in, in right into the Great Recession, I think we're all that like around the same age. I feel like we all kind of did. And then um, mm-hmm. the, the, I remember the recession. I was there. Yeah. And ever since then, I mean, sometimes I see on Twitter, like, what was the moment, like someone asking the room, what what was the moment you were radicalized? And <laughs> uh, I, I usually think about like, well, it was the day I woke up after college and then just realized that I was fucked. <laughs> yeah. Every <laughs> and, day since 9-11. Yeah. Only every day since 9-11. And I was privileged enough that at, at one point in my personal history to not have to pay attention to politics because uh, I was like sheltered in my little New Jersey bubble. And then one day, like, uh, you know, it changed a little bit and then it changed all at once. And ever since then, you know, I've like, I think, you know, in, in my early music listening days, I just like, loved the feeling that like a great punk rock song gave me and like, mm. stuff, like, like a call to action and a call and response and a call to resistance. And that I think is still needed now, probably more than ever, at least in our lifetimes. But like that ultimately is like the feeling that I get, um, rise within me it's always existed just by listening to fight the power and especially seeing it on the screen it feels timeless let's now talk about the legacy and chart performance we did talk a little earlier about the through line from public enemies fight the power and like the message and their the jing and how other uh, rappers into the 90s and the 00s and the 2010s kind of picked up that baton. So I'm not going to do that again. But in terms of chart performance, this really was very successful at the time. It, it hit number one on the hot rap singles chart. It hit number 20 on the hot R&B singles chart. It was named best single of 1989 uh, by the Paz and Jop critics poll in uh, Village Voice, which 
I'm not sure if it, I think it still exists, but it may not anymore. Yes, yeah, Stephen's shaking his head and it doesn't exist. Yeah. So if you're a music journalist, you really like nerd out hard over the yearly pass and drop poll. So to be voted by critics as number one is a, is, is no small deal. Yeah. So in 2001, the song was ranked as 288 in the Songs of the Century list compiled by the Recording Industry Association of America and the National Endowment for the Arts. In 2004, Fight the Power was ranked number 40 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs, a great a list of the top 100 songs in American cinema. Something that we should consult for the show that it did not occur to me we could even look at (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but we will and in 2008 it was ranked number one on vh1's 100 greatest songs of hip-hop in 2011 time included it on its list of all-time 100 songs it is also one of the rock and roll hall of fame's 500 songs that shape rock and roll speaking of the rock and roll hall of fame public enemy were inducted in 2013 believe and again, in September 2011, it topped Time Out's list of the 100 greatest songs that changed history. And moving up to more recently, in 2021, Fight the Power was ranked number two in Rolling Stone's 500 greatest songs of all time. There is a conspicuous lack of Grammy yeah. uh, rec- recognition. <laughs> I think that this is so deserved. I think the song fucks so hard. It is so good. That's that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the Grammy issue that we talked about earlier. They have Public Enemy has been nominated six times, but awarded zero times. And the band as it exists today and the institution, they kind of have like a love I, I think it's like a love-hate relationship. Um when when Deborah Dugan, the previous CEO of the recording, the very short-lived CEO of the Recording Academy, was fired, Chuck D had a lot. He had a strongly worded message about that. You could, it's on his Instagram still. You can look it up, and he kind of talks about his like history of boycotting, and uh, was I, I think it was under Dugan's under her like president her reign <laughs> tenure. Yeah, thank yeah. you. It was under her tenure that you are public, an editor. Yeah, that Public Enemy were uh, going to be receiving a, like a lifetime achievement award with the Recording Academy. Mm-hmm. I, I think she had a, a hand in that, and then they fired her. <laughs> and not Public Enemy, but uh, the Recording Academy. They fired mm-hmm. her. That's a whole other podcast, <laughs> but I have thoughts. Much like Public Enemy, Spike Lee was also snubbed at the big award show that year. He was snubbed at the, the 1990 Oscars, only receiving two nominations, one for Danny Aiello for Best Supporting Actor. He lost to Denzel Washington for the movie Glory. I have a ton of thoughts about mm-hmm. that nomination, about Denzel's win, about like fetishizing black pain in movies. We could talk for another s- several hours about that. The, the film was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay and lost that award to Dead Poets Society. Okay. Okay, man. <laughs> and the Best Picture Award that night went to Driving Miss Daisy. On stage at the Oscar ceremony that night, Kim Basinger actually said the best film of the year isn't even nominated and it's Do the Right Thing. We've got five great films here. And they're great for one reason. Because they tell the truth. But there is one film missing from this list 
that deserves to be on it because, ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all, and that's do the right thing. Yes. Yes. 2008, Spike Lee told New York Magazine, I didn't even know her, but when driving Miss Motherfucking Daisy won Best Picture, that hurt. No one's talking about driving Miss Daisy now. This uh, 1990 snub began a nearly 30-year trend of the Academy overlooking Lee and his boundary-pushing work. They even snubbed Lee's second undeniable masterpiece, Malcolm X, which is like, what the fuck are you doing, guys? In 2015, Spike became the youngest recipient of what basically amounts to a lifetime achievement award they don't call it a lifetime achievement award and then in 2019 finally the academy gave him the award for best original screenplay the one that he lost for do the right thing for the movie black klansman and i i did like a dive i can't say for certain if spike is the only person to win a competitive oscar after a lifetime achievement oscar but he's definitely the only person to do it in the last 25 years Weirdly, but maybe not so weirdly, this parallels Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing and the the career trajectory of that filmmaker. The film was roundly praised by critics. If you care about Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 92%. But New York Magazine's political columnist at the time, Joe Klein, and former critic Dave Denby had other strong reactions. This is Spike Lee's quote in New York Magazine. One of the biggest criticisms was that I had not provided an answer for racism in the movie, which is insane. And what's even more insane is that people like Joe Klein and David Denby felt that this film was going to cause riots. Young black males were going to emulate Mookie and throw garbage cans through windows. Like, how dare you release this film in summertime? You know how they get in summertime. This is like playing with fire. And Stephen, you alluded to that a little bit earlier, which is that that there was like this round table of people who thought that the movie was irresponsible, which I think is pretty insane. But can you talk a little bit more about like, I don't know. I, I'm I'm asking you to put put yourself I- in the shoes of a crazy person, but like, why would someone ever think this? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I want to say that like the roundtable it does actually have a lot of perspectives, and like some people are defending the film and, and saying that you know there's a lot of context, or they're just kind of like nitpicking small things. But I, I think that it was just for me the roundtable is interesting because there were people who had this reaction that these critics had. And honestly, I think it's just, I think part of the reaction just underscores like why Spike Lee made the movie and made like some of his choices. Like it is, this movie is agitprop. It is, it is goading you into reaction. It is playing on your perceptions of how race works and how it should work. And, you know, it's not, it's not like an easy movie. You know, it's, it's crude. It's abrasive. It's horny. It's angry. And, you know, I I think that, you know, some people kind of like, they didn't see those mechanisms. They just kind of, they inhabited their reaction and they're like, well, I must be right because this is how I feel and this is how other people feel. Um, But the thing is, when you're working with the provocateur, you have to think, you have to think about your, your reaction and you have to think like, why did they do this? And it's clear, you know, 
that this movie, you know, it's as much a love or it's, it's more a love letter than anything. It's like, wow, look at this like beautiful world that can like easily be as like ruthless as it is tender and like warm and look at how, you know, to go, go back to the snow globe. Um, look at how like people who don't understand this world can be in this world. You know, that's Sal and his sons, or they can just kind of cruise through it, um, and like do like irreparable harm, um, which is the cops. And even that, that guy who, um, they like spray his, uh, his car. And, you know, like what's funny about that interaction is like, I, I, that's another scene where, you know, Spike Lee is, <laughs> he's provoking you, right? Cause let's say, you're like, like that guy, he rolls into Brooklyn on this block. He sees the fire hydrant open and he's like, Hey, you fucking kids, you better not get my like, like super clean, like old school car, like wet. And they're like, Oh yeah, we'd never do that. And it's like, okay, guy, first of all, don't yell at kids. Um, yeah. you see this situation, turn around, hit a U-turn, like, no. um, this street doesn't even have like a light. This is just like stop signs. Like you don't have to be here, but he does it anyway. There's no one else. There are no other cars on the street. You yeah. could go around the block. Yeah. Even after he gets sprayed, he could be like, damn, they got me. You know, it's, yeah. it's annoying. Being nice know, is but, um, free. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, this isn't like he solicits the cops and he's like, put bury them under the jail. And I'm like, wow, this is like, I mean, he's like a Karen, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Proto Karen. This also speaks to what you were saying of like Danny Aiello, people had come up to him and be like, you know, Radio Raheem deserved it. Like, like there is no provocation that a piece of art can make that will not be misinterpreted by somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. And the fact that people can't distinguish reality from fiction to the point where they approach the actor who was in the provocative movie to be like, you were right the whole time is like, yeah, this world is, contains multitudes. Well, the Sopranos had that problem. And I just thought of the Sopranos because that guy is Phil. And I will only think of him as Phil <laughs> because of the Sopranos. <laughs> Mob boss like called Gandolfini in the middle of the night. Do you know this story? Gandolfini like got some random call in the middle of the night be like I'd never wear shorts and then just hangs up (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that story but the but the Sopranos had the same problem where yeah yeah, like uh too many people were siding with it's Breaking Bad too yeah Breaking Bad yeah so and just to be like super blunt it's just like well a lot of people are just like racist you know and Mm -hmm. It's not even just that they're racist. They have like this very controlling idea of like what black people, what young people should do, like what a quote unquote right thing is. You know, you, you see this anytime there's like a, a police killing, you know, it's like, well, if you had put your hands on the dash and like said, sir, like it wouldn't have happened. It's like, well, what if, you know, we didn't have like armed people um, pulling people over for like running a stop sign and not hurting anyone. And I think, Lee is like, he's directly targeting those kind of ingrained responses. Cause I mean, like I said, when I'm 17, I see that trash can go through the window. I'm like, why do you do that? Like, I wouldn't do that. And I'm like a black person. So I think Lee, like, you know, you know how ironclad our ideas of like moral certainty are. And that's why, you know, even in the title, like do the right thing. Like we, we think we know what the right thing is, but when you like really peel back the layers, it's like actually way more complicated than we think. And 
I think all those reactions by those critics, that's just them feeling very superior about how the world should work. And um, especially like with respect to like political violence, you know, that's, I think just to tie it back together, like, even though like, I feel like if I were like a film student, I would want the, the movie to like, I, I would love the symmetry of the, the movie beginning and ending with like fight the power. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Sal has to like interact with Mookie again and vice versa because Mookie underscores just like Sal, like, you know, you have insurance, you know, I know you, I know you built this thing or whatever. That's the big point that he makes, but like Radio Raheem died. And like, we can't come back. Your pizzeria, it can come back. Like you, like you were still here. Radio Rahim is not here. And like a lot of people, they just can't or or are unwilling to to think about like what that means, like for like property versus life. And even like you said, that scene is so powerful because even after this tragedy happened, they still have to like live and work. Mm hmm. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you tell us where people can find you and your work? Yes. So I'm not on Twitter, thankfully, but I have a website, no reason to pretend.com, and I update that with my most recent work. And August 8th, my second novel, Liquid Snakes, is out. Um, you can pre order it now on Amazon, at Bookshop, anywhere you want. Um, it's a pharmacological thriller about a cdc investigation in atlanta awesome mazel yes mazel indeed i will definitely be ordering that and thank you all for listening to our humble show keep the conversation going on social media or everywhere at the nsync pod and tune in next week when we talk about another needle drop that will make you want to set a pizzeria on fire and that's the truth ruth Hell yeah. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $129 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.